right now. We praise you for your majesty, your power, your glory. You are the one who knows all things. You are the one who is everywhere present. You are near unto us. We give you our praise and our thanksgiving, Father, for who you are. We thank you especially today for your loyal love, which never fails. Your faithfulness is ever-present. Your mercies are new every morning. We give you our thanks for our salvation and the price that was prayed through the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. We give you thanks, Father, for the many blessings that you have given us in life. We indeed are greatly blessed, highly favored in your presence, and we give you thanks. And Father, we thank you for the privilege of addressing you as Abba Father, the one who cares for us. We pray now that you would feed us from your word, convict us, encourage us, strengthen us, empower us, and draw us near through the teaching and exposition of the truth of your word. May we live in light of it. And Father, if there's any here that do not know Jesus Christ as Savior, may they find their peace with you this day by putting their trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins and the gift of eternal life. And we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to begin this morning by giving you a little bit of an update on uh, Ukraine. Um, I want to thank you for praying this past uh, week. The ladies and the children you see around the table are the family of Sergei Lazrenko, the pastor in the church that is our sister church in Ballet Tsirkov. The people standing in the rear are missionary family from Temple Bible Church that live in France. These ladies arrived in France on Friday. In answer to our prayer, and uh, we have contributed to them financially. They're going to be staying in a hotel in France for some days. Um, the uh, lady in the, seated on the right at the rear of the table with the kind of blondish hair apparently has COVID. So they're all um, kind of hunkered down in a hotel for right now, eventually going to make their way to Spain. But it's a huge answer to prayer that they've arrived safely and want to give you thanks for praying on their behalf. Also want to report that Sasha Reftoff, who is the son of Nikolai, whose wife has very aggressive brain cancer and needed treatment, was holed up in southern Ukraine for uh, 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 the better part of two weeks. And the government finally released uh, both Sasha and his wife from Ukraine. Um, he wrote me on Friday, and they are traveling down through Romania on their way to, through Bulgaria and to Turkey, where she can get medical treatment. So that's another huge answer to prayer. And we want to thank you for praying on their behalf. This past week, um, I had a conversation with my son-in-law. As he related to me some interaction that he had had with uh, his oldest daughter and oldest son, our grandson, granddaughter. Our granddaughter is a freshman, uh, sophomore in college in Tennessee. And our uh, grandson's in a gap year between high school and college. And he said both of those um, children or kids related to him that they feel like the world is a different sort of place than it has been in the past. And indeed it is. 
Two years ago today, I had my suitcase packed along with Bess, and we were ready to depart the next day to go to Romania, where I was going to teach a course in a Bible school there. Uh, that course was never taught. The notebook is still in my files with an untaught course. The pandemic swept the world, brought changes to all of our lives for a long season of time. We're not completely back to normal yet, getting closer, but then the war between Russia and Ukraine happened, and the news is flooded every single day with headlines from that part of the world, and we keep hearing the term escalation to nuclear war as a threat. Um, I saw an article as well this week of the threat of a cyber attack on America that would shut down our entire electrical grid and our water supply. And you can imagine the rioting that that would cause and how life would become so difficult in it all. The world feels like a different place. We live in very uncertain times. If there's anything that we need, we need some anchors of truth that will keep us strong and steadfast in uncertain and difficult times. As believers, we are not to be given over to fear, but to the power of Jesus Christ with a sound mind, feet firmly planted on truth. Today's message is an epilogue to the series that we've just preached from 2 Thessalonians entitled, What in the World is Happening? And that message as an epilogue is going to come from Ezekiel chapter chapter 38. It's a passage that involves the leader and the people from the regions of the aggressor in the present war between Russia and Ukraine. It's a passage that describes the war of Gog and Magog. Some of you are well acquainted with the terminology. For some of you, it is brand new. Now, my purpose is not to sensationalize what is going on in the world today. There are many who believe that the present war is a prelude to a future invasion described in this particular passage. I happened to mention that to one of my children this past week, and he said to me, Dad, that sounds very Hal Lindsey. Um, well, Hal Lindsey didn't get it all wrong. He got it wrong when he began to set some dates, but much of what he preached and taught was accurate and true. I suppose that the present conflict could lead to what is described in this particular passage, but with as much trouble as Russia's having with Ukraine right now, I doubt it. But what is more important is that we be reminded of some basic truth that will affect our posture in the midst of uncertain times. And so I'm going to ask you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 38 and stand for the reading of the scriptures as I read from this particular chapter. We're going to read much of it together. Chapter 38, I'm reading from the New King James Version. Some of your versions are going to vary slightly, but please follow along. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against them. 
and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, and lead you out. Now jump down to verse 5. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all of its troops, the house of Tagorma from the far north, and all of its troops, many people are with you. Verse 8. After many days you will be visited. In the latter years you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. Verse 10. Thus says the Lord God, On that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind, and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates, to take plunder and to take booty and to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again, again inhabited and against a people gathered from the nations. Verse 14, Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel dwell safely, will you not know it? Then you will come from your place out of the far north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a mighty army. You will come against, up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you. O Gog, before your eyes. Thus says the Lord God, Are you he of whom I spoke to in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them? And it will come to pass at that same time when Gog comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will show in my face. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath I have spoken. Verse 21, I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother, and I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. The Word of God. You may be seated. As a little bit of background to the passage, the prophet Ezekiel, along with Daniel, was one of the prophets that prophesied in Babylon. This particular passage is part of the sixth message that Ezekiel received from the Lord uh, on the night or that he received news from refugees that Jerusalem had fallen. The plans deal with God's plan, with God's plan for Israel in the distant future. In your bulletin, you have an outline. I'm going to follow um, 
Kevin's lead on that this day because of the complicated nature of the passage. Hopefully, it'll help you follow along. There's two primary points we want to look at. What we know from this passage about the war of Gog and Magog, and then second, what we can learn about living in uncertain and difficult times. As we look at the passage and what we know about the war of Gog and Magog, we want to look at the who, the when, and the why. And looking at the who, we notice that the passage is about Gog and Magog, first of all. Now, the term Gog is a title. It refers to an individual. It is not an individual name. It is a title, like emperor or pharaoh or czar, leader, president. It is a title. It refers to an individual who is titled by the term Gog. You also need to know what Magog means or who it refers to. It refers to the land and the peoples in a certain section of real estate in, east, in uh, north of Israel, as we'll see in a moment. When Josephus wrote of the Magogites, he said that they were the Scythians. Josephus was born soon after Christ's death and resurrection. He died about 100 A.D., he is a Jewish historian, and he wrote that it was the understanding of the times that the Magogites were the Scythians. Now, we're going to show a map as to where the Scythians dwelt. They dwelt between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea in what today is southern Russia, Georgia, Azerbaijan, and Armenia. That was the region in which the Scythians lived. It's important to know and understand. And so they lived to the north of Israel. But along with the Magogites that is being, are being spoken of here, there were allies associated with Gog and Magog. Those allies are delineated in verse 5, Persia, which is undefinitely modern-day Iran. There's an alliance between the Magogites and the modern-day Iranians. Ethiopia, in my text, some of your versions say Cush. It is hard to know for certain who this refers to, whether it refers to Ethiopia. Many believe it refers to the people of Sudan, who are today in an alliance with Russia. We don't know for certain, but it is certainly people from the regions of Africa. Also, Libya, some of your versions have put, it no doubt refers to Libya. But notice in the text that this Gog is also the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Now, there are many people today who say that Rosh means Russia. Listen to me carefully. The term Russia did not come into being until about the 11th century A.D. Now, it could be that God looked ahead and saw the term, so there's a linguistic similarity between Russia and Rosh, but probably it is not a reference to Russia specifically. There are others who say that Meshach is Moscow. Again, there's a linguistic similarity between the sound of Moscow and Meshach, but probably not a reference to Moscow. Those same people say that Tubal is Tobolsk, which is the capital of Siberia. Once again, 
a linguistic similarity between the two. But in all probability, these refer to peoples who lived, once again, if you can put that slide back up, Ben, once again, lived in and around the regions of the Black Sea and southern Russia. And so there's an alliance of people from the area where Russia is and people uh, and the nation of Iran and Libya in the south, and that is who the text is speaking about. But probably more important for us, because it's difficult to firmly establish the names and places, is what Ezekiel tells us in verse 6. Look at that verse once again. Gomer, which some say is Germany, but probably again another nation in southern Russia or around the Black Sea and all of its truth. The house of Tagorma, much the same. But notice what the text says, from the far north and all of its troops. The same terminology is used in verse 15 if you look ahead in the text. Then you will come from your place out of the far north and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a mighty army. And so though we do not know specifically the nations that are being spoken of here when we speak of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and even Magog. We know the general region from which they came. We know that this army indeed comes from the far north. And if you look at this next slide, you'll see that in the far north, we do have the great and mighty empire of Russia that exists today. It is that region of the world. And it's the leader of that nation, a Putin-like individual who will instigate the war of Gog and Magog. That is who the text is speaking about. It is peoples from this part of the world who are going to invade Israel. It's as simple as that. That is the who. The second question is the when. We have to look at the text carefully as we look at answer that question. It happens, notice the text says, in the latter years. Look at verse 8, if you would, once again. After many days you will be visited. In the latter years, you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many peoples. It is in the latter years. First clue. Same idea is repeated in verse 16. Notice the text. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days that I will bring you against the land. So the first thing that we learn about this is that it's in the latter days. It really speaks to the end of time as we know it. Somewhere near the end of time. In the later days. The latter days. The second clue as to when this takes place, it is after the return of Israel to their land as they are gathered from the nations. Look again at verse 8. We'll read it again. After many days... You will be visited in the latter years. You will come back into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which has long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. Now, Ezekiel chapter 36 and chapter 37 prophesy the future regathering of Israel after they have been scattered to the nations of the world. That scattering took place in 70 A.D. In 1948, Israel was reestablished in the nation, 
And now we have some 9 million people that live in that land, and immigration is taking place in large numbers even as we speak due to the conflict in Ukraine and Russia, both Russians and Ukrainians going into the land. The way has been open for most, or the Ethiopians as well to return, and the nation is swelling. And so there's a, a, a prophetic uh, fulfillment in the regathering of the nations. And notice that the text says it is after that regathering that this battle takes place. So we are beginning to approach the season of time in our minds when that could take place. It is after the regathering. Whether it's complete or not, only God knows when it will be complete. We do not know. However, we do know in Ezekiel chapter 37 that there's also a spiritual restoration of Israel that apparently precedes this. That hasn't taken place yet. But the key, the key clue, it is that after the return to the land of Israel of the people of Jewish heritage. Third, it's when Israel is dwelling in safety. Notice verse 11. You will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls, and even neither bars nor gates. I've been to Israel three times. There's only one wall I saw in the land. That was around the old city of Jerusalem. There's not walls in Israel today. But are they dwelling in peace and safety? Not really, at least not completely. There's always the threat of missiles coming from Gaza. We know that Hezbollah is storing up missiles in Syria. They are always under threat. They are keeping their eye on Iran. They are not fully dwelling in peace and safety. Could the Abraham Accords be a prelude to the peace that they will enjoy? The Abraham Accords where they have established peace with Bahrain and with, with the United Emirates and, and more recently Sudan and Morocco? They could be a prelude to that. But the nation is going to be dwelling in peace and safety. It becomes this third clue as to when this will take place. Fourth, it will take place before the millennium. The millennium, for those of you who do not know, is the thousand-year reign, the literal reign of Jesus Christ upon earth, spoken of in Revelation chapter 20 and in the book of Isaiah most clearly. Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48 speaks of what we call the millennial temple. At least that's their understanding of it. This passage is sandwiched between the regathering of Israel and the millennial temple. So it appears from Scripture that this battle will take place sometime between that regathering and between the establishment of the millennium. Now listen carefully. There is another war of Gog and Magog spoken of in the book of Revelation. And if I didn't uh, fail to write it down, I did fail to write it down. I, let me turn to it very quickly. Listen to what it says. When the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together in battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and the fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And so there are some people who believe, regarding the when, that it doesn't take place prior to the millennium, but this passage refers to the battle described of Gog and Magog in Revelation 20. Follow me? Now listen carefully. 
When you read the scriptures, there is often a near and a far fulfillment of prophetic scripture. God told a man by the name of Ahaz that uh, through the prophet Isaiah that he was going to have a son who was born of a virgin. Ahaz had a son born of a woman who at that point was a virgin. That was the near fulfillment. But the ultimate fulfillment was the birth of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth of Christ. Jesus in Luke chapter 21, I believe it is, predicts the fall of Jerusalem. There was a fall of Jerusalem when Jerusalem was surrounded by armies, 70 A.D. He predicted that. But as you read that passage, you see that it goes beyond that scattering and that or that fall of Jerusalem and the scattering of the people of the nations to a second surrounding of the city of Jerusalem. There is both a near and a far fulfillment of many prophetic scriptures. And as best I understand it, this passage in Ezekiel 38 is a reference to a near fulfillment of the prophecy regarding Gog and Magog and there will be a future Gog and Magog in Revelation 20 at the end of time just before the creation of the new heavens and the new earth at the end of the millennium. So the bottom line, the bottom line as we speak about this passage as to the when is that it's going to be in the latter years after the return of Israel when the people are dwelling in safety and sometime before the millennium. Now many people um, think that this present war is in fact um, the beginning of the war of Gog and Magog. Pat Robertson, 91 years old, uh, CBN 700 Club, wrote, said this just a couple of weeks ago. God is getting ready to do something amazing that will be fulfilled. Putin went into Ukraine, but that wasn't his goal. His goal was to move against Israel ultimately, and he will link up with Turkey across the little land bridge, and they will come together, and then you look down into North Sudan, and you've got a Muslim country down there, and they are all, and there they all are. Persia, of course, is Iran. Gomer is Ukraine. I don't know where he gets that. Magog is the stand countries, along with Armenia and Azerbaijan. He stated, you can look at your map, you can read your newspapers, you can listen to your news, but know of a fact that God is bringing to pass what he prophesied years ago through his servant Ezekiel. Not necessarily and probably not. Others are a little bit less bold in their interpretation. People like Joel Rosenberg, whom I highly respect, I follow his news. Greg Laurie out of uh, Harvest Fellowship in California. Amir Safardi. Um, they all indicate that this could lead to the war of Gog and Magog, and possibly it could. But it's dangerous to pinpoint beyond what the Scriptures say. After the regathering, before the millennium, sometime in that time period, we don't know when. Some believe it could take place at any time. Some believe it needs to take place in the first half of the tribulation. Some believe that this is the battle that leads up to the battle of Armageddon at the end of the tribulation. We just don't know. The scriptures aren't clear exactly when it takes place. Now, one of the reasons that we speak of this is because it's very important that we not sensationalize or tell people or broadcast people that this is that, as some are doing, because it undermines the, the fact when we speak truth, they don't believe us then because they couldn't believe us before. And when you begin to broadcast 
things that do not come to pass, you really become a false prophet. And uh, you'll have one of your kids say to you, that sounds like a Hal Lindsey kind of thing. I don't believe it. Third important truth is the why. Why does this guy go down? Well, if you look at verse 10, notice what it says. Thus says the Lord God, On that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind, and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against unwalled villages, and I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls, and having neither bars nor gates, to take plunder and to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited and against the people gathered from the nations. Why does this take place? Because an evil man, a Putin-like individual who will lead an alliance of nations, the center of which is in the far north, unprovoked, like he was unprovoked really in Ukraine as best we know it, though we don't know what's taking place behind the scenes, will decide to invade that land with the purpose of plundering the land. Some say his purpose will be because he's anti-Semitic. He could be anti-Semitic, but his purpose will be to plunder the land, to take booty from them. Now, how could this take place? Why would Russia, with their vast natural resources, want to invade Israel and take their natural resources or whatever? The Jerusalem Post has come out with a series of articles that have been interesting. I'm going to show you some PowerPoints just for a moment. Chevron CEO says Israel gas pipeline could supply Europe amid crisis. Now, why is that important? Well, if you've read the news, you know that Europe gets its natural gas from Russia through something called the Nord Stream Pipeline. And there are two of them, Pipeline 1 and Pipeline 2. Now, we've heard the people talk about the importance of cutting off the natural gas from Russia. And if I understand the news articles correctly, they've cut off Pipeline number 2, but they're still getting their gas from number 1, so Europe still has gas. They are not really cutting Russia off, even though the the media indicates that they have, if I've understood things right. But if Europe would refuse to purchase natural gas from Russia, they needed to get it someplace else. And CEO, going back to that slide, says that the gas pipeline could supply Europe amid crisis. Israel gas pipeline. Now look at the second slide. Israel is to boost its gas supply to Egypt up to 50% by this month. Why is that important? Well, Israel doesn't want to offend Russia, so they're willing to send their gas to Egypt. And notice what Egypt does with the gas supply. Next slide. The slide, you can't, re you can't read headlines on it, but the headline underneath, Egypt plans to take the gas and sell it to Europe. That's what that article underneath that picture says. Their gas, natural gas is offshore of Israel. Next slide. And they're... Their, uh, their policy papers represented that Egypt, a future gas supply to the European Union. So we could see how it could happen that if Israel, uh, if Europe decided not to buy gas from Russia, which is a major source of their revenue and important for their economy, and they don't purchase it from them, 
and it's going to hurt the Russian economy, but they're selling their gas to Egypt and Egypt to Europe, we could see why a Russian type of individual would want to go into Israel to plunder that land. That's why he goes. And he's evil. Bottom line. He is just plain evil with an evil plan. That's the initial cause. That's the initial reason. But there's a greater cause, a greater plan, a greater plan by a sovereign God. Look at verse 4. Notice what the text says. The Lord God speaking, I will turn you around, speaking to Gog, the, the ruler. Put hooks into your jaws and lead you out. I will do that. Look at verse 16. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days, and I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me that when I am hallowed in you, O Gog, before their eyes. You see, what the text is saying is that there's an evil man who concocts an evil plan, but God is a sovereign God over it all, has a purpose in it all, because he ultimately is going to bring it to pass. And as you review the history of mankind... Somehow the responsibility and the evil plans of men have been used by a sovereign good God to accomplish his purposes. Even the return of Israel to their land in the present day is ultimately a result of the Holocaust under Adolf Hitler. And God used the workings of an evil man whereby great numbers of people suffered and turned it to a mission to accomplish his purposes for the world. He took the slavery of, Egypt, of Israelites in Egypt for 400 years to bring them out to display his power to the world at that point in time. So even though man is responsible and it will be an evil man with an evil plan, there's a greater plan by a sovereign God who wants to accomplish a greater purpose. And what is that greater purpose? It is to demonstrate his ultimate victory. For notice what the text says beginning in verse 18. I, and it will come to pass... At the same time, when God comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will show in my face. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath, I have spoken. Verse 21, I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother, and I will bring him to judgment with pestilence, bloodshed, flooding with rain, hailstones, fire, and brimstone a greater plan by which God is going to gain the ultimate victory. Why? Because there's a purpose. Notice the purpose in verse 23. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. <laughs> That's God's purpose. So the peoples of the world, the nations of the world will know that he's God. Just like he delivered Israel out of Egypt, the nations heard about his magnificent power and they feared and trembled because they saw that Yahweh, the God of Israel, the Lord God, was the true and only God. And that is his ultimate purpose, to show the world out of his great love that he is God because he wants to draw all people to himself. And so who is this? It's an alliance of nations from the north. When does it happen? Sometime in the future. We don't know when. Don't mistakenly think that it has to be now or this has, war has anything to do with that. It could lead to that. Probably not. But if it does, then so be it. 
But why? So that God can demonstrate his power using an evil man to bring the nations to recognize that he is God. So what do we learn from such a passage as this? We can tickle your brains with all the excitement of prophetic truth. That's not my purpose today. Please hear my voice. Um, it's not to overlook prophecy, but it's to put it in its proper place because prophetic truth is designed by God to impact our lives in the way we live today. Knowing about the future should impact the way we live today. And so what are the anchors of truth that we need to plant our feet upon? There are three of them. First of all, there are times when God's people suffer unjustly. There are times when God's people suffer unjustly. Jesus said, in the world you shall have tribulation. He predicted that. 1 Thessalonians 3, Paul wrote these words, No one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, and then you know. In Acts, the Apostle Paul said as well, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Peter says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. As believers, we should not be surprised that bad things happen to good, godly people. They just do. And people say, why does a good God allow that to happen? I don't know exactly, but it is a fact and a truth of Scripture, and we need to be prepared for that in our own lives, that the day may come that you and I are going to have to suffer tribulation. Some of you already are. Through it, God is refining our faith. He's drawing us close. He's showing us his power. That tribulation is part of our lives. I've been spending some time in recent weeks in, in Psalm um, 55 to 60, a, a great section of the Psalms. But I want to read some words from Psalm 55. Because of the voice of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they bring down trouble upon me, and in wrath they hate me. Fearfulness and trembling have come upon me. Oh, horror has overwhelmed me. So I said, oh, that I had wings like a dove, I'd fly away and be at rest. Or, oh, that the rapture would come, and I could escape. But then he speaks about who his enemy is. It's not a, a foreigner in this case. He's for it's not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it. Then I could hide from him. But it was you, my companion and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together, and we walked to the house of God in the throng. There are times in life when righteous people suffer from unrighteous people. Children at the hands of their parents experiencing abuse. Got a call yesterday from, a, from another pastor who it was discovered this week that one of his elders was sexually abusing girls in their church. Um, devastating to the whole church. Um, Wives at the hands of their husbands, people at the hands of their leaders, nations at the hands of other nations like Ukraine with Russia. 
Yalam Shankar was a uh, pastor in India who in January saw a note tacked to his door with the names of 30 people and said if they continued to preach Christianity, they could lose their lives. On March 17th, this past week, his body was discovered by the door of his house, and today his family grieves. Why? A woman by the name of Margie hears that her husband has been unfaithful to her. He defends himself, supposedly proves that he has not been unfaithful, and then he contracts cancer and dies within a month or two. He's known globally because he's a famous apologist. Her name is Margie Zacharias. And today she lives with the pieces of the life that her husband left behind, even asked to move out of the home that they had lived in because it was owned by the ministry. Times when God's people suffer unjustly. Or you're in the business world and you've got a good job and then your company gets sold and you're told by the old owners that the new owner's going to going to keep everybody employed just like they have been, but little bit by little bit, you notice that they begin to bring people above you, and those people are beginning to bring in their own people, and you see the handwriting on the wall. Ultimately, the time will come. They'll let you go. God's people suffer unjustly. Second important truth is that God is in control. The Ukrainians suffer unjustly. In the passage we looked at, the Israelites suffer unjustly. There's nothing that they do to provoke what happens. Ukrainians are suffering unjustly. But we have to remember that ultimately God is in control. We don't know the reasons and the whys and the wherefores. But he has a sovereign plan to display his glory among the nation and to bring ultimate victory to his people. The men are studying the life of Joseph. Here's a young man, a little bit too much braggadocious when he was 17 years old, like most 17-year-olds are. But other than that, he's innocent, he's moral, he's pure. But he gets sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. And there he's falsely accused of sexual harassment and sexual abuse of his boss's wife. And he ends up in prison. He tells the interpretation of a dream, and he says to the butler who for whose dream he's interpreted, remember me, but the butler doesn't remember him. And so for two more years, why? Two more years. Why couldn't God have stopped that? He languishes in prison. And finally, he gets his chance. And the brothers come before him. And what does he say to the brothers? You meant it to evil, but God meant it for good. Putin means this war for evil, but somehow God is meaning it for good. He's in control. It's a truth of Scripture. And God means for this coming battle to be ultimately for good. He's in sovereign control. Joseph wasn't even aware of the greater good because he was unaware of the fact that Israelites had begun to intermarry with the Canaanites and lose their identity as the people of God. So God had put them in Egypt where the Egyptians had nothing to do with the Israelites. <laughs> And in the womb of a safe environment, a nation could be birthed that followed God. And so we are called to trust God. In that Psalm 55, we read these words, As for me, I will call upon God. The Lord shall save me evening and morning and at noon. I will pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. 
Psalm 56, whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? Cast your burden on the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. Third important principle is ultimate victory is assured when we trust. Psalm 59, my God of mercy shall come to meet me. God shall set me, let me see my desire on my enemies. Trust him and ultimately the victory will come. Ultimate victory is assured when we trust. Some of our greatest trials in life lead to the greatest demonstrations of God's love and mercy and power on our behalf. <clears throat> Yesterday, a good friend of mine that I went to college and seminary with sent me a picture of um, a gathering in a living room of he, himself, and my, me, and a couple of other of our friends, and a couple of professors from the seminary. And my, nine, my, my mind reflected back to, to those days. And then <clears throat> last night, I discovered a, uh, uh, <clears throat> something you all probably know about, but something called Spotify. Never, you know, I, you know, some of us take a while to find, find this stuff. And I was thinking about that, and for some reason I clicked on some of the old 60s, you know, Simon and Garfunkel, and you young people don't know who that is probably, but, you know, some of those songs that we listen to. And then my mind began to page back to the blessings of all the years. And as I've thought the blessings of all the years, I've realized that my greatest blessings have often been the aftermath of some of my greatest trials. You know, my being here as part of this body and what God's done here is one of the greatest blessings of my life. It's been my life work. But it came as a result of some elders telling me that I was no longer to come to elder meetings and I was no longer to be in leadership. I was just to preach. And then an elder came to my house one night and said, the Holy Spirit's no longer with you. And they were endangering my, uh, ability, my privilege of even preaching anymore. And I didn't know what I was going to do. So I called Donald Sonner. Hey, I'm ready to go. I love those people, most of them. <laughs> <laughs> I've had to come and forgive some of them. I didn't want to leave. But God used evil to accomplish a greater purpose. This is his plan for my life. Um, some of the greatest blessings come as a result of some of the greatest trials in life. And God displays his glory and his goodness in all of it. Dean is going to, with Eb, is going to go see the Mount Sinai this week. I want to see the pictures. I got to thinking about Exodus. You know, it's when the Israelites were backed up against the Red Sea. And they had no place to go. And the armies of Pharaoh were bearing down on them. One of their greatest trials, at the greatest display of God's glory in the Old Testament, probably, and the parting of that Red Sea, it became the means of their salvation, happened. It was when David was, the Israelites were facing Goliath and the Philistines that David faced the giant. It was that Daniel was living in threat of being thrown to the lion's den for simply praying that God came through. And the greatest demonstration of all, how God brought good out of evil, was when a man, a God-man by the name of Jesus, went to a cross. And he died. And his followers thought it was over with. It was finished. Their hope was gone. But three days later, he rose from the grave. 
And it became a prelude to the ultimate victory. When he'll plant his feet on the Mount of Olives, he'll establish his reign. And even more than that, he'll create a new heaven on the earth where he'll reign and deliver up the kingdom to the Heavenly Father forever and ever and ever. The greatest trial of his life as he suffered for mankind led to the greatest victory. I don't know what God is doing in Ukraine to our brothers and sisters, but I believe that God is going to work glory through it all. It's easy for me to tell them to trust him, but the issue is, will you and I trust him when tough times come our way when we don't understand? That's the lesson of Gog and Magog. Simple truths for uncertain times to anchor our soul in God's word. We're going to turn to the Lord's table, and we're going to celebrate that death of Christ because it led to victory. And if you're a believer in Christ, we cordially invite you to share in this table with us. If you're a believer in Christ, we honestly ask you to please examine your own heart to make sure you're in fellowship with God. None of us are worthy to take the table, but if we are in fellowship with God because we have confessed our sin to God first and then to others against whom we've sinned and received their forgiveness, we participate in the fellowship of the body of Christ with the Lord Jesus himself. Would you stand? And if you're, would you lead your row? If you're in the front, move out to your left, back to your, into your row to the right. Please hold the elements. We'll take them together as one.